Please take your Bibles, God's holy, precious, perfect, and powerful word, and turn in them to Romans chapter 1. If you are visiting, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we have pew Bibles in most of our areas of the sanctuary. We just welcome you to follow along visually as well. Normally we have slides that lay all the scriptures out, but today we don't need technology. We're going to work our way through the text. So seeing it visually, page 939 in the Pew Bible, if that's helpful. So three goals today. Finish the introduction, which is goes through verse 17. So we got through 16. We have one verse to go there. Then introduce the first big section. So breaking Romans into about eight or so sections, the first big section runs 118 to 320, I would propose. And we'll call all of that the righteousness of God required from humanity. And then the first big step that we're going to take today is to try to work our way through verses 18 to 23, which your bulletin has as a title, God's righteousness, man's godlessness or unrighteousness, and God's wrath. Two weeks ago, when we were last in Romans, recall that Paul gave us a trifecta about himself. There's three straight verses, uh, verses 14, 15, and 16, that all start with I am's. And three things that Paul talks about, that he's under obligation with the gospel, and he goes on to delineate to Greeks, barbarians, but basically to say to all kinds of people, it doesn't matter who. Secondly, I'm eager to preach the gospel, both to believers in Rome as well as to the lost in Rome as he gets there. And then, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the message that it proclaims about Christ. And then, we also noted three simple but profound truths about why Paul feels so strongly in those three ways about the gospel. Because verse 16, it's the power of God for salvation. Verse 17, it's the righteousness of God. And verse 18, it's the wrath of God. We only made it through the first of those truths, the power of God in verse 16, noting as a reminder that God is stressing through Paul's writing, salvation is not by the power of you, nor by any human power. We actually contribute nothing to the work but bringing our sin and in faith casting it on Christ to save us. It's not by anything in the power of creation, but a power that has to be greater than us, greater than our sin, which is a massive, massive quantity. Greater than this world, as powerful as it is, greater than Satan, as powerful as he is, and even greater than death, if it's going to have any hope for us beyond this life. So, incredibly greater power than any human can do, any human can provide. But by that, by faith, whether Jew, Gentile, Old Testament, New Testament, makes no difference. All are saved who have faith in Christ, in the grace of God, and the power of God. So today, today's passage are more reasons why Paul and why we should be eager and unashamed to preach the gospel. Romans 1, 17 to 23 will reveal to us truths about the gospel, truths about God, truths about man, a lot of truths about man, 
and in all of that, further explain why we, like Paul, 2,000 years later, must be just as much under the obligation to preach the gospel, just as eager to do so, and just as unashamed to do so. Would you please follow along with your eyes as we now read this passage of God's holy truth. First, verses 16 and 17 as the thesis of the whole book. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then I would propose verse 18 as a one-sentence summary of what all is going to come. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then verses 19 and 20, why verse 18 is true. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And then more explanation of man's tragic rejection or suppression of God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Before we dig into this rich passage, let's turn to God. Acknowledge our need for his help to understand it, believe it, and apply it, and express our desire to him. Lord, on behalf of all who are looking at your word now, we ask, in your power, please open our spiritual eyes, our spiritual vision and insight, so we may more clearly behold you, almighty God, in this text, and be awed by the magnificent truths that are here, as hard as they can be for us to swallow. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for what you are doing through it. And we thank you that in spite of these things, you have provided for us our salvation through your Son. Lord, for all who are saved in this room, by you, by faith in Christ, by your righteousness, Sanctify us through this truth, for your word is truth. And for those who don't know you yet, Lord, would you save them even as we study through this and they put their faith in what you have revealed here and in your Son and in the gospel. We ask all of this for the glory of our great God. Amen. So, Second reason, Paul's given one reason already that he's not ashamed of the gospel and he's eager to proclaim it. Now we come in uh, verse uh, 17 to a second reason. And as many of you may know, this is the verse that finally Martin Luther, after studying it and actually hating it, 
God, by his mercy, opened his eyes to understand that faith was not by his works. He would never be able to attain the righteousness of God by that, but that it was being offered through faith, not through works, through faith for his salvation, which led ultimately to the Reformation that we're so thankful for. Now, some assert that verse 17 is really the same truths of verse 16 paraphrased. And I had a slide to show you this. This is going to be a lot harder to verbally try to give it to you, but I'll try. Um, There are a number of verses where God's righteousness and God's salvation are paired together very synonymously. For example, Psalm 98.2. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness. Isaiah, in chapter 51, in verses 5 to 8, three times. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out. My salvation will be forever, my righteousness will never be dismayed. My righteousness will be forever, my salvation to all generations. So, we might say God is expressing his righteousness through all of what is being described here. But I do think that there is a distinguishing element that Paul is making here uh, in noting that the gospel centers around the power of God, but also around the righteousness of God. That the source of God's power is God's righteousness. So kind of a multifaceted way to think of this first line in verse 17, that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed. One, it's revealing how utterly, purely righteous God is. That righteousness is a perfection, a sinlessness, and as we'll see, an inability to overlook any evil. Man, first all my mints were gone, now all my Kleenexes are gone. Watching for you. Pardon me. Which explains why God requires nothing less than the perfect sacrifice of his own son. To bring righteousness to us. There was a t-shirt in the, in the 80s that I used to see somebody wear quite often. And on the back of it was brazen this. The righteousness that God requires is the righteousness God's righteousness requires him to require. And it stuck with me. I don't know who said it originally. Probably not the t-shirt maker. Uh, but somebody captured that God's righteousness requires a righteousness that we cannot have but he still requires it of us. A righteousness that either comes from a perfection or a righteousness that has been given to us from outside of ourselves. A second facet of the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is that it reveals how woefully insufficient our righteousness is. The gospel reveals that our own righteousness will never be able to save us. Verse 18 is going to emphasize in contrast that all our righteous efforts, all of our efforts that we perceive as righteous are actually unrighteous things. We must get it some other way, from another source, and as a gift. And third, the righteousness of God in verse 17 notes how righteousness can be, how Sorry, let me try that again. How righteous, unrighteous humans can be made. 
despite how unrighteously we live every single day of our lives, through Jesus Christ and his righteousness and faith in that, which the second half of verse 17 is going to emphasize. Though not stated here directly, Romans will eventually show us that that righteousness was really revealed to the word through Christ incarnate. Through Christ's righteous life, through Christ's death and powerful resurrection, we have been made the righteousness of God by God's faith. It's harder to track with quotes when uh, they're not on the screen, but I think this one, I'll skip a bunch of them, but I think this one is worth explaining here. John Stott on verse 17. The righteousness of God is God's just justification of the unjust. His righteous way of pronouncing the unrighteous righteous. In which he both demonstrates his righteousness and gives righteousness to us. And he has done it through Christ, the righteous one who died for the unrighteous. If I had more time, I'd read that again. But we're going to keep going. It'll be in the email, Lord willing, on Tuesday, if technology works for that. When faith is placed in the gospel message that verses 16 and 17 are talking about, God confers, imputes, credits the believing sinner with the status, the position, the standing of righteousness incredibly before God. And this is what Luther finally came to understand that ultimately led him to deny the Catholic doctrine of justification with God by our works and ultimately led to the Reformation that proclaimed salvation comes through God, through Christ his Son, through the grace of God, through our faith in that, glorifying God alone. Verse 16 ended with a clarification that it's only for those who believe it, let go of everything else and cling wholeheartedly and put all of one's trust in Christ and the gospel and not in ourselves at all. Trusting in the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Verse 17 builds and expands on that thought, develops it even more when it says from faith for faith. Or the New American Standard and the New King James both translate this from faith to faith. And I'm told literally, if you just read it straight, it reads more like out of faith, meaning how it begins. It comes out of faith and into faith. It's a faith that keeps going. It's a faithful, lifelong dependence from start to finish, first to last, and every step in between. It is by faith. Even as Daniel just read from Hebrews 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Impossible. So here, Paul is simply reminding uh, all of us, or conveying to all of us, that we're never, ever to turn from faith to something else, to turn from Christ to something else. All of our salvation is by God's righteous work, uh, not our own. And Galatians 3, you might jot that down, 1 to 6. Paul emphasizes that there when he asks the Galatians, if you receive the Spirit, uh, if you receive salvation by the Spirit, then you're not going to continue in that by works of the law. It comes by hearing and uses Abraham and his belief. So Luther here said of this line, 
the believer grows in faith more and more so that he who is justified becomes more and more righteous in the way that he is living out that faith. Paul then connects at the very end of verse 17 another emphasis. It sounds like he's being repetitive here. But this is the first of, I'm told, about 60 times that Paul will quote from the Old Testament or reference heavily the Old Testament. And this is the first of those from Habakkuk 2.4 that the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, just as throughout all of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, the Jews had to walk by faith, the only way they could truly be considered righteous because none of them kept the Mosaic Law perfectly. So in the New Covenant, after Jesus has been revealed, to be saved is no different. One must still uh, live in one overarching way by faith. Faith alone unlocks the power of God and the righteousness of God that are necessary to save sinners. And there, in those two sentences, I really think we have a theme for the whole book for where all 16 chapters will go from here. So, done with the introduction, now let me be briefly introduce this next little section, which is about two full chapters long and really makes the one big pointment of what uh, one big point, what God's righteousness reveals about man's unrighteousness. God, for now, has Paul leave the emphasis on righteousness. We don't see that word now for a while. It'll be picked up heavily in chapter 3, starting in verse 21. But in between, he is going to lay out a lot of what we call very bad news, which is just the truth about the guilt and the condemnation of all mankind, all people, all humanity, doesn't matter if it's Jews with the law or lawless non-Jews. Here is why God has to reveal his righteousness and why ours is inadequate to save us. Very briefly, to two groups of people here. If you do not yet know Jesus in a saving way, first of all, we're so glad you're here. Come back, keep coming and at least thinking. It's the most important things that you can think about in all of life. But here begins to explain some very hard to accept truths about the way all human beings are. Our pride will just rise up and immediately begin defending us and immediately begin attacking what God says here. Believing that it can absolutely, can't absolutely be true about us. And that leads people to declare things like what is written in the rest of chapter 1 here. Crazy, cruel, homophobic, and a whole bunch of other things. I just ask, would you, in these few minutes, consider carefully what God says here with just the entertaining of the possibility and allow yourself to consider if what God says perhaps is far more accurate than any human really wants to acknowledge or admit. God offers his powerful, righteous salvation to anyone who believes in him, his son, and the gospel as the way to escape the wrath of God that is already beginning to be revealed. And secondly, to those who are saved, two quick comments to you. Number one, we still must continue to guard our heart against the things this text indicts. 
Don't just think this is about unbelievers. Recognize that we still struggle in these areas despite God's immense grace to us. I gave in to some of what this talks about this week. And I'll bet if you're honest, you did too. Let's ask God always to increasingly turn our hearts from all that might be ungodly or unrighteous. And secondly, for us who believe, it's an, this is an invaluable guide for our witness as to what's really going on deep inside. Nobody you're talking about the gospel with may articulate these things, but there, God is giving us an insight into the soul of human beings that is profoundly important and significant. People express their rejection of God in a myriad of visible ways before our eyes, but God here is saying people are condemned for what verses 18 through the end of the chapter describe. May God help us realize what is going on in people's hearts and minds that we might bring the gospel intentionally to them. Now, why does verse 18 jump so abruptly? We're going to get to verse 18. Why does it jump so abruptly from the righteousness of God to the wrath of God? And Tom Schreiner maybe captures it well in this little sentence. Here's what he called this section. God's righteousness in his wrath against sinners. He goes on to say, one cannot grasp the greatness of God. One can grasp the greatness of God's salvation only when one understands the devastation introduced into the world by human beings. Douglas Moo, it is necessary for God to reveal his righteousness in the gospel because God has also found it necessary to reveal his wrath against sin. This is the havoc human beings have wreaked on themselves and on all of creation that once was created perfect by God by their ignoring of God and what he says. So, if you want a little outline of this section, which really is the rest of today and next Sunday, Lord willing. Verse 18 is the reality about God. Verses 19 to 23 is the reason about that reality, God's wrath being revealed. And then 24 to 32 will describe the result of, man, of what is described about man in those last three verses or so. This is the creator's diagnosis of his creation. How he sees what he has made and what he is doing about it in light of what man is doing and not doing. So verse 18 I would propose to you is a one sentence summation of really all that's going to come here. Uh, particularly the rest of chapter 1 but it really runs further than that because you will see in chapter 2, verse 10, I believe, 9 and 10, the wrath of God will again be our subject in a few weeks. So, as a freestanding kind of overview or theme of this section, what's important here is to recognize what the wrath of God is. And it's different from our wrath or our hot anger. So different, we have to consider carefully what all it entails. Because you might read that first line and say, I don't see wrath being revealed right now. Despite the fact that God says it is. So, several very quick definitions. Sorry they will be faster than you can note. Hopefully you'll get enough of it. It's the attitude and the action of God toward sin and toward those who practice sin. 
John Murray. It's the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. John Stott. His wrath is his holy hostility to evil. His refusal to condone it or come to terms with it. His just judgment upon it. It's the reflex, the reflective action his holiness has and must have to anything that is not holy. Now, despite the fact that Psalm 711 tells us God is angry every day, and Romans 2.4 tells us that the God has, is showing an abundance of kindness, forbearance, and patience. We have to note from 2 Peter 3.9 that the reason he is doing this is so that more people will have a chance to repent. So here, it's not the full-blown wrath of God. In fact, if you look at 2.11, Romans 2.11, you'll see the statement that God's wrath is being stored up. So you have a way in which it's being revealed in present to some degree and a way in which it's being stored up and held back until it is poured out in the future in full. But here, it's the sense of he's releasing, not holding back people from plunging headlong into the very thing that will destroy them. He's not stopping man from sinning. He's allowing him to experience the what he thinks is the pleasure of it, but then the ruin, the misery, the wrecking, the havoc that it creates in his life, now on this earth, and ultimately, eternally in hell. So, more details about how it's revealed are coming, particularly next Sunday, we'll see a, a three-pronged way that God gives us over to our sin. But here, first, generally, what angers God? All ungodliness, all that is unlike God, all that is not of God, all that is against God, and unrighteousness. So you can say some of the same things. All that is not righteous by his standard and measurement, all that is not of his righteousness, all that is against his righteousness. Psalm 14, 2 and 3 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. And the conclusion in verse 3 is they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Very much like the days in which God brought a flood with his wrath upon the earth and spared only eight human beings. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the last part of verse nine is just another, or verse 18 is another way of saying what has just been said, describing the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. It's because their unrighteousness suppresses, holds down, represses, restrains, reasons against, denies the truth. So man suppresses the truth, and as a result, God begins to express his wrath against that action. Now verses 19 and 20 are going to give us one side of it, and that is why God's wrath has already begun to be revealed. And it's because what can be known about God is plain to mankind, to human beings, because God has shown it to them. 
In other words, he's revealed. There's a knowledge of God that is evident in creation. There's enough revelation from God to have an awareness of it, even if it's vague, even if it's not sufficient for salvation, it is sufficient for condemnation. It's sufficient to make people accountable to their creator. It's sufficient to compel people to search for God, to wonder about him, to ask questions, to seek him. It's kind of Paul's message in Acts 17 when he walked into Athens and he went to the Areopagus and he began to explain things and talked about all the gods they saw and then started articulating why God was different from all the other ones. And cutting into the middle of his speech, he says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Paul went on to explain in that speech, Yet he is, not, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him, in his creation, in his being, we live and move and have our being. All of our human life as well as our spiritual life comes from him. And then he closes that speech to say, The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And that's what God is saying here in Romans 1 and goes on to even specify two particular things about his, yes, invisible attributes that are visibly able to be noticed, recognized, seen, acknowledged. His eternal power, his divine nature. Both of these things that are far greater than humans are or can do. And he says that they've been clearly perceived, not just they're able to be perceived. They have been clearly perceived. Not just perceived, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In other words, for every human being that's ever existed, in the very things that have been made. So, James Montgomery Boyce here. We are not to think of this limited revelation as minimal, as if somehow limited quality alone can excuse us. According to the Bible, this natural revelation, though limited, is nevertheless extensive and overwhelming in its force. One of the clearest ways God shows this is in Psalm 19, 1-2. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day by day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Over and over and over He talks about how they have a voice, so to speak, declaring there's a God. We sang about it last week. The whole earth is filled with his glory. If you look intentionally for the evidence of God, God says, you can find it in so many ways. But man's issue is he doesn't want to look. He's not driven to answer questions like, is there a God? What is he like? And what does that mean in my life for me? So the conclusion is they are without excuse. He's going to give more reasons for following indictments, but here at the end of the general they've been shown is this, the exclamation or the declaration, the announcement, the judgment that they are without excuse, meaning they will have nothing legitimate to say in their defense that's justifiable before God. There won't be a debate in God's courtroom. God will Show the evidence that proves every human is culpable 
for failing to heed the abundance of evidence. So the very irony of this little section, verses 19 and 20, is that the very created things which are designed to point people toward God are the things people use to run from God and turn away from God. So here's the indictment at our quitting time, and we'll roll a little bit longer. I'm halfway. How's that? We'll go for a bit. Apologies to children's church teachers and nursery workers. Here come the indictments. I'll try to do them quickly but fairly. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. In other words, although there's a sense in human beings, deep, deep inside of them, that there is a God, that he exists, that there's something bigger than them, they do not like that truth. It rubs them the wrong way. They prefer autonomy. Boyce's short way of saying this is, we want to run our own lives. R.C. Sproul on this. The problem is not that there is insufficient evidence to convince rational beings that there is a God, but that rational beings have a natural antipathy to the being of God. Man's desire is not that Yahweh exists, but that he doesn't. Two particular ways that God, man expresses this. We don't honor God. We, we either refuse or just fail to give him the honor, the reverence that is due him as God, as creator, as king. We worship something else and give it over to something else other than God. And we don't give thanks to him. Again, either intentionally or just ignoring that need and that fact. Os Guinness says, Rebellion against God does not begin with the clenched fist of atheism, but with the self-satisfied heart of the one to whom thank you is redundant. Two things in particular that are poisoned by this refusal to honor and give thanks to God. Become futile in their thinking, and that's played out anymore. They be, in the next verse, they become fools. And their foolish hearts grow even more darkened. In other words, the light that God has given just becomes less and less what they look at, what they ponder, what they pursue, and instead they plunge themselves ever more into increasing darkness. Back to Psalm 14.1. The fool concludes in his heart, there is no God. At least there is no God I'm ultimately accountable to. There is no God that's going to carry out a judgment day. There is no God that has a hell and a heaven where everyone will either spend one place or the other for all of eternity. Claiming to be wise, believing themselves to be smarter, smart enough to be their own gods, they became ever more bigger and bigger fools. And the primary way they show that folly, verse 23, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. And he goes on to describe some of those images. And if you peek ahead at verse 25, which Lord willing we'll look at next Sunday, you'll see a very parallel passage. Both verses start with exchanged, and then they exchange the glory in verse 23, the truth in verse 25. They exchange the glory of the immortal God in verse 23, and in verse 25 they exchange the truth about God for a lie. Verse 23, for images. So some of the same thoughts here of how people make the tr fatal trade-off of substituting the worship of something else in creation other than God, whether it's themselves, another human being, another God that they have come up with. Something other than God has become the focus of the people's lives. Something other than God is receiving the adoration that is due to God. 
alone. We come back to the, in closing, to the trinity of attributes of God that are laid out here in verses 16, 17, and 18. The power of God, the righteousness of God, and the wrath of God. And let's combine them in these thoughts. The righteousness of God brings, on one hand, the power to save sinners who have no other power to save themselves. And, on the other hand, the righteousness of God brings God's wrath that condemns sinners. The cross, where the suffering, incredible agony of Jesus and the dying of him on that cross shows the righteousness of God perfectly manifested with the wrath of God. And the resurrection of Jesus, hallelujah, shows the righteousness of God perfectly manifested with the power of God. So in closing, I just want to come back to those of you who don't know yet where you stand with God. What will his indictment of you be? His ruling of you on judgment day. I just had somebody tell me yesterday when they heard we were going to have a message on Romans 1. I was born again by reading that chapter. God convicted me. I repented of my sin and I believed in Christ for the power of salvation. That can be true of you today as well. Yes, these are hard truths to acknowledge about the way we are apart from God. God doesn't hold back, but he tells us, he reveals it. And we can either argue with him and disagree and shake our fist at him, or we can acknowledge that he is right and we are wrong. We are suppressing the truth. We aren't honoring him. We're not thanking him. We're not worshiping him. But the beauty is to go back to verses 16 and 17 as the offer to you, to anyone who will believe that it is the power of salvation through faith, through faith and to faith in Christ becoming a man like us, and this is in the bulletin as well, living a righteous life, sinless as only he could do, and then offering himself as a blood sacrifice on the cross, bearing God's wrath as a substitute in our place to pay the penalty that we deserve for our unrighteousness. But 16 and 17 both emphasize, don't go out and work harder and try to make yourself better enough for God to accept you. It's impossible. Receive the power of God. Receive the righteousness of God in order to escape the wrath of God by believing in him, his son, and the gospel message. And for those of you who do believe, who have been saved and are being saved by his righteousness and his power, what has God revealed today from this text to you about himself? And perhaps it's breaking you down to simply worship more or thank him more. What a salvation about the gospel and about human nature. What are the implications of this for your life? Is there something here you need to believe more? Something here you need to repent of? What is God speaking to your heart about today? And what are the implications, followers of Jesus, for sharing our faith as we think about the people that we're talking to, one soul at a time in most cases, do you feel under obligation to preach the gospel? Are you eager to preach it? Not because it feels good,
but because it's the truth that if it's not suppressed, will lead to salvation through Christ. And are you unashamed about the gospel? The only hope, the message, no matter what this world says about how foolish we are for believing it. May God help us all in believing this, in living it out, and in sharing it. Father, again, we thank you for this sweet truth of yours. Hard things to believe. We want to believe we are better than this. But we're so thankful that you tell us where we're at, where we stand with you, and how accountable we are. And that you offer to us your righteousness through your Son and through simply your grace and us believing and counting on that. So Father, refresh our hearts in the gospel and for any here again who don't know you yet, God, I pray you will work on them now, granting them the faith to believe and to see. It's not in them, but it's in a God who through his Son has provided an incredible salvation. We praise you, we thank you, we worship you, we exalt your name. And we ask that your word will now dwell richly in us so that we live it out as you desire and bear much fruit for your glory. Amen.